During our nation's civil war in the mid-19th century, the Union Army repeatedly invaded the South. The North's objective was to cripple the Confederacy's very capacity to wage war, and one of the Union tactics was to pull up the iron rails on southern train tracks in order to disrupt the transportation of Confederate troops and supplies. In the early stages of the war, the Union troops would take a rail off and they would, at a makeshift fire, heat it, and then they would bend it or crimp it. So it would look something like the letter L or the number 7 when they were done and moved on. The difficulty with this was that with relative ease, the Confederate engineers simply reheated the rail right on location and were able to stake it down again and the trains continued to roll. Then Union troops discovered a new method. They began to merely, not merely to bend it, but to take the rail after it was heated and to twist it. And that rendered it useless. They would often loop it or even wrap it around a tree. And so these twisted rails came to be called Sherman's neckties or Sherman's bow ties in honor of General William Tecumseh Sherman who championed the method. When an iron rail is twisted in this fashion, it cannot be repaired on site. It's worthless. It has to be hauled back to the mill. It has to be melted down and remade. Now, on the night of Peter's betrayal, where he denied that he knew Jesus Christ, Satan, so to speak, made a Sherman necktie out of Peter's thinking. He twisted it in such a way that it was useless in the call to stand for Christ. On that horrifying night, Satan twisted the way that Peter thought about suffering for Jesus. And that twisted thinking led Peter to deny Jesus, to refuse to suffer reproach and bodily harm for Christ. What was all important to him was set aside in that moment under the pressures of expectation and ease. We come now again to the book of 1 Peter. We've been working our way through this. And we come to Peter's counsel, his straight thinking about standing for Christ against hostile forces. And Peter came to this place because in a sense his thinking was recast by Christ. It proved worthless in that moment of temptation. But Jesus got a hold of Peter and in His mercy brought him to Himself and recast his thinking. And we now come to this book and we have the privilege of this sage advice from one who fell and did not stand for Christ. From one who ultimately stood and gave His life for Jesus. And in these writings then, we see as Peter found out in the courtyard of the high priest that it's not self-reliance that will win the day. It's not certainly bravado or willpower. It's not even ministry experience that Peter had that would lead him to stand for Christ. All of this is useless. And when our thinking gets based on such things, our thinking is so twisted as to be unuseful in any way. But it's clear from studying this book and it's been dawning on me, I think, a little, little by little as I continue to put it together and think about it in new ways, having read it many times certainly, but thinking about it in new ways, it's clear that what Peter is doing here throughout this book is helping 
these new believers to think differently. So much of it is about perception of the world in which we stand. The key is to think straight about persecution. We want the kind of faith that stands in the face of suffering for Christ. And if we do, then we must see where we stand in salvation history. Our self-perception of where we are, of what is going on in God's greater story, is crucial to standing for Christ. We must perceive the future what is coming in salvation history. And we must learn, as we learned in chapter 4 and verse 1, to subject our natural cravings for ease and safety and acceptance to the will of God. There are these natural desires that bend us one way, and there is the will of God. We need to learn to submit those natural desires to God's will. To live according to what He calls us to do. All of this is a new way of thinking. And Peter was on both sides of this thinking. And now with these uh, believers who are suffering difficulty for Christ, he counsels them and directs them to perceive life in a certain way. We come then, as he seeks to recast our naturally twisted perspectives on suffering, to chapter 4 and verse 12. And in these several verses that follow, Peter summarizes a number of the key themes that we've seen through the book to this place. It's what we might call a a Janus. It's pointing back and forward all at once. It's like it has two faces. It's summarizing what has come before in the book. In fact, as we look at these texts here, these verses here today, we won't see a lot that's different. We'll see themes that we've considered already, but it's also pointing obviously into the last main section of the book. Noted that there in verse 11. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The book ended there. We would all go on and wouldn't even know that there needed to be anything else. So it's clearly a, a division marker. There's a main section now to come in verse 12. And yet, a reprisal of many of the themes that we've considered already in the area of suffering. So first of all, in verse 12, Peter corrects a twisted way of thinking about suffering. This is where he starts. Notice what he says. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. What is the fiery trial? What's he talking about? Obviously, in this context, it is persecution. He speaks of persecution here as an inferno or as a furnace. I think it's a good translation that we have. Some miss this idea of the fiery trial. But there's two concepts then that are really conveyed here. First of all, this is difficult. And second, it's a test. There's something that's being determined here as you go through this suffering, this persecution, as you face opposition to your faith. Now think of these people. Prior to their conversion, Peter's readers did everything everyone else did in a sensual and depraved culture. Remember chapter 4 and verse 3. They gave themselves to sensuality just like everyone else around them. But now their lives were being transformed by the Gospel. They were beginning to live righteously according to the will of God and it meant that many of the things that they had done before they weren't doing any longer. And how did people take that? You remember at first, it was it, he evidences here surprise. And remember, it's going to many churches, many people, varying situations, some suffering directly, some not. Some it's potential, some it's actual. 
So he's talking to a lot of people. But he brought it out here as, remember, they were surprised. They're surprised that you don't run with them in their depravity anymore. And then the surprise turns to what? It turns to reviling, to opposition, to ridicule. So they're reviled and oppressed for their faith in Christ and for the transformed lifestyle that went with it. And this is all very new for these largely Gentile converts, according to chapter 4. That's who we would understand them to be. Certainly some Jewish people among them, perhaps. But largely Gentiles who don't have a history of this kind of opposition. If you're a Jewish believer, you've at least had some training in what it means to be ostracized by your culture. But for many of these people, they ran with the sensual indulgences of their culture for all of their life, and then they met Christ, and now everything was different. And people didn't like the way they were living. They opposed it. Now here's Peter's counsel to them. He, in a sense, puts his arm around and says, listen, here's how we need to think about this. Do not be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. You must eliminate the twisted thought that suffering for Jesus is unusual. It is not unusual. If you went to the post office, let's see, not tomorrow, on Tuesday morning, you went to the post office, and you walked in with a letter that you needed to mail. It was a little heavy, so you, weren't, you had to go in and get it weighed and send it on. And as you walked in the door, all of the workers got up from their stations and they surrounded you and they began spewing bitter, nasty words at you because of the color of your envelope. You'd probably start sweating and shaking and you couldn't wait to get out of there and you would talk to people and say, man, something really strange just happened to me in there. That was weird. I've got no categories for why something like that would happen to me. Or if you had a neighbor for a number of years, you always worked well together, didn't spend a ton of time together, there's never a harsh word between you, you cooperated, you shared tools, and one day the neighbor comes over, gets in your face, starts yelling at you and telling you what a horrible neighbor you are. And you shut the door and turn to the family in the house and say, what, what was that? I, I have no idea why this person treated us like this? What, what changed? What happened? This is so weird. I have no categories for this. No explanation for it. Think of the mentality in those two situations. There's surprise. I don't understand this. Peter says, do not respond like that when someone persecutes you. When someone ridicules you, when they oppose your faith in Christ, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Our mindset should be one that anticipates such resistance. It anticipates such tests of our faith. It doesn't look at it as something horrible. I've run into a streak of bad luck and into, into a really nasty person here. Now, I don't think that we should be fearful, always ducking in anticipation that someone's going to revile us or say something to us or hurt us in some way, but neither should we be shocked as if some strange thing were happening. This accords, obviously, what we've seen before and we reiterate again and what we know in Jesus' teaching. Remember what He said, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the Apostle Paul, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Okay, in our thinking then, let's, let's stake this point right here. We'll not ever be surprised. We're not going to be shocked. Jesus told us not to be shocked. The Apostle Paul's teaching us not to be shocked. The Apostle Peter here is saying, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening. It's not strange. Not if you lock into the larger story. Not if you lock into what God is doing in this world and how He is using you in the process. If a soldier is thrown into the heat of battle and the enemy starts shooting at him, he doesn't stand up and say, what's up? Was it something I said? Do you not like my uniform? He's not shocked by that. He expects the enemy to fire. If we understand what God is doing in this world, we're going to expect people to fire. In fact, some of those people will join with us eventually, won't they? And sometimes it's their very resistance and the way that we respond to that resistance that draws them to Christ. No shock, no surprise, this is the way the world works. Now at, verses, at verse 13, Peter now counsels straight thinking on persecution. Don't think that way, but in contrast, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Rather than being shocked, we rejoice when people oppose our faith. Now, it's not because we're obnoxious, not because we've done something to draw appropriate, appropriate criticism, but we should not, as we operate in such a world, be shocked by it, but rejoice in it. Now, as it brings us joy, we know that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's the source of the joy. I know I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ. How do we take that? That's not that anything is lacking in Christ's sufferings to atone for sin. Peter counsels us rather to recast suffering in our minds. To see persecution for Christ not as a disaster, but as an identification with Jesus. Now it's not a formal identification as is immersion, baptism. Baptism we, as followers of Christ, identify with the death and the resurrection of Christ. There's an identification there. Suffering is not formal in that sense. It's not an ordinance or a sacrament, but rather suffering, but suffering is, however, an identification with Christ. It is an identification with the pattern of suffering for righteousness' sake that Jesus intended for us to follow. Now, if we're learning to think this way, it really requires a purposeful effort in imitating Christ, doesn't it? It takes us back to chapter 4 and verse 1. Remember what was said there. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus thought a certain way as He went through and endured persecution. Arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. And Peter continues to arm us with that kind of thinking as he says here, rejoice in your sufferings. 
be glad. You may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. What's He doing there? He's pointing us forward. If I recast my thinking this way, I will perceive where I stand in salvation history. We go back to it again from last week. But remember, over here, the first advent of Christ. Over here, the second advent of Christ with all the complex of both of those settings. But those large pillars, we live in between. And this in-between, the first and the second coming of Christ, is an era of suffering. It's an era where the Gospel of Christ is resisted. We should see ourselves there and recognize that's where I stand. We should also recognize then that the era of vindication and triumph is approaching. And that works itself out here in verse 13. Rejoice in our sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So if my thinking is rightly ordered to God's historical agenda, I will not see it as strange that I'm suffering in an era of suffering. It will be expected. But I will look long. And I will look to the day of vindication to come. I don't think we're prepared to suffer for Christ then until we've learned to fix our eyes on the day of vindication and triumph. To know that day is coming. To lock our eyes of faith into it. To realize it's out there. And to live today as if that day in fact will come. And so continues Peter on the same theme, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There it is again. Chapter 3, verse 14. Suffering is blessing. Being counted worthy of suffering for Christ. Twisted thinking, as someone spoke ill of me, they reviled me, they mocked my faith in Jesus, they made fun of me. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to put up with this garbage? Why are people so uptight about stuff like this? No, it's rejoicing. Rejoicing because I'm not looking just at the relationship between me and this person and the way that they've misused me. I'm looking at my life in light of what Christ is doing and how God is working out His salvation in this world. And so seeing that, I rejoice. I'm insulted for the name of Christ. I know that I'm blessed, and I know I'm blessed because, verse 14, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a, it's a little bit of a difficult phrase, but I think the idea is simply that there is, a, there is an understanding then in the midst of of suffering, that Christ hovers over me. That God's goodness and His glory is walking with me. Almost like the Shekinah cloud in the desert with the Israelites. When I suffer for Christ... I mean, Satan's not into that. Satan's not into having me suffer for Christ and enduring it. Seeing me, understanding my place between the advents of Christ and understanding that this is the era of suffering and enduring that's not satan's agenda so when i suffer with christ i face ridicule and insult and perhaps even physical persecution then i can know the glory of god rests upon me the spirit of god is evident in my life 
I'm identifying with Jesus and His cause. And so I can rejoice. When I fear ridicule and avoid speaking for Christ, when I despise ostracism and criticism, when standing as a Christian, my thinking is twisted. It's disordered. It's ordered far more to where I am in my fleshly desires for ease and safety and approval and the like, then I am ordered to what Christ is doing in this world. So we need to recast our thinking to the timetable of God's saving plan and see ourselves for where we stand on that timeline as a kingdom of priests. Now, at verse 15, Peter offers an important qualifier to his counsel. And he says this again. He said it earlier in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. But let's get this straight again, this qualifier. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We understand what he's saying, right? don't, Don't count it suffering just because you happen to be a Christian and broke the law. That's not suffering for Jesus. Yes, you're, you belong to Him. You're a follower of Him. But you just broke the law. You're just getting what you deserve. Don't suffer that way. John Chrysostom said well on this point. We do not love them. He's speaking of martyrs here in the context. We do not love them because they suffer. But rather because they suffer for Christ. On the contrary, we detest the robbers not because they suffer, but because of the crimes for which they are punished. So, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't suffer for doing wrong, but, verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I'm going to take in that name to be the name Christian. As a Christian. So if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. When we suffer as an evildoer, we're merely receiving what we deserve and should be ashamed. But when we suffer ridicule, are reviled, insulted, or in some way mistreated because we are a Christian, a follower of Christ, there should never be any shame there. Now we don't quite understand this the way I think the original readers would have in a far more shame-based culture. But when you're reviled, when you're ridiculed, certainly when you're prosecuted, that's an evidence of your weakness, of your folly, of your societal failure in some way. It would have been very natural for them to really see the judgment of their society, of their culture, and to feel very badly about that, very ashamed about it. In our Western individualism, we might fight this a little bit more naturally, but not so much. It's good counsel to us as well. Don't be ashamed. Don't respond that way. If I'm looking at the relationships on the horizontal plane, I'll be ashamed when people resist. But when I look at the relationship that I have vertically with God, there is no reason to be ashamed. Don't be ashamed but glorify God in that name. Again, I think that means glorify God as you bear the name Christian. Bear it with honor. Bear it with dignity. Don't back down. Don't feel shame. Stand for Christ and know that He watches over as the judge of the living and the dead. 
What Peter now does at verses 17 and 18 is he sets suffering for Christ in its larger theological framework. He's giving us counsel. Don't look at it this way. It's not unusual. Part of the whole idea of where you are in salvation history. Remember, the end of all things has come, he said. Rather, not being ashamed, bear the name of Christ with honor, but let me set this in a larger theological perspective. I think is his agenda here at verse 17. As he now begins to draw on the Old Testament text and draw from Old Testament Scriptures this larger principle. Here it is, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He quotes the Old Testament. And if the righteous is scarcely, that means with difficulty, saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This, is, this, this goes a bit deep in what he's doing and what he, how he's bringing their thinking around here. But it starts with the word for. Everything that Peter has been saying, here at verse 17 now, everything he's been saying hinges on the grand story of redemption in which we participate. So verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter seems to be drawing here from Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. Without going into great detail, God's judgment is depicted in these texts as starting with God's people and working out in concentric circles from there. In Ezekiel 9, it's an it's a account of discipline and God's judgment falls on Israel and God sends an angel to take some people out in death, to kill them because of His judgment upon Israel. And He says, start at the temple. Now there's a whole reason for that in the, in the book of Ezekiel, which doesn't necessarily apply here, but the idea is the judgment started at the temple. Now when you read this phrase here, the household of God, I think it'd be really best to just not say the word fold. House or ha- Household hold, hold, whatever. (laughs) The hold part gives us the idea of a family. We have God as the Father and we are the children of God and that's an appropriate image. It's just not what's going on here. When we look at the Old Testament background, the better idea here is the house of God where judgment starts. It starts at the temple. I think what Peter is doing then is he's on this side of the cross. He says that judgment begins with the new temple, the church. It begins with this new priesthood that he's been talking about. The people of God. And God's judgment has begun to fall on us, the new temple in which God's Spirit dwells. We might draw from Ephesians 2 for background there. Okay, some breaks are going on, I hope, and maybe a little bit of smoke going up here. Wait, what's going on with the judgment of God's people? I hope that there's a natural objection in your mind there. Doesn't it trouble us to think that God's judgment is falling on His people? Judgment beginning at the house of God? Has not God's judgment fallen on Jesus? Did Jesus not bear our judgment and pay the full penalty of our sin? Is it not true that there is now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's this talk about judgment falling on believers? All of this is gloriously true. In fact, if I could take just a brief sideline and an important one. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. That He bore the full wrath of God on the cross. Bearing the full penalty of our sins such that all who believe in Him, in His substitutionary punishment in our place, will be saved from the wrath of God. Not by something we do, not by our participation in it, but because of the pure mercy and grace of God, Jesus paid the full penalty of our sin. That's a glorious message we need to all take with us, uh, take home with us today. That message is the power of God unto salvation for all who put their trust and their hope in it. But back to the thinking here, if Christ took our judgment then, in what sense is God's judgment falling on His people? How is His judgment falling on the church today? The key here is how we understand the word judgment. And we are programmed, because of our understanding of the New Testament, to read the idea of judgment always as damnation. Judgment for sin. But, but we should link judgment here, I think, rather to verse 12, the fiery trial. Judgment does not always end in condemnation. Sometimes judgment ends in testing and proving someone true. And that's the fiery trial that the church faces. We are facing judgment, in a sense, the eschatological judgment of God is falling in the midst of sin and a fallen world. The judgment, however, of which Peter speaks here is not judgment against our sin, but rather the purifying fires of persecution. And it is by means of these purifying fires of resistance from an ungodly world that God determines the genuineness of our salvation. So putting this all together with the Old Testament context, with the context of 1 Peter, to simplify it a little, Peter is just saying we are in a world of suffering. We're in a place of resistance, and through that resistance, God is judging the genuineness of our faith. All the judgment for our sin fell on Christ. We're forgiven that. But God is determining the, the, the genuineness of our faith through these purifying fires. He's purifying the members of His church, assessing their metal. But if such purifying fires are now falling on believers in the form of persecution, you now see what he means there in verse 17. If it starts with the house of God, if it starts with the new temple, the church, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the Gospel of God? There the judgment of God will fall in condemnation because there's no righteousness of Christ that stands between the sinner and God covering them with righteousness and the standing of Christ. So Peter argues from the lesser to the greater, from the light case to the heavy case, as the Jewish rabbis spoke of it, saying if God's refining fires are falling on believers to test the metal of their faith, what will come to those whose faith does not prove genuine? All of this, it is vital mindset that is necessary to enduring persecution. 
The Old Testament uh, direct quote, verse 18 from Proverbs 11.31, if the righteous is with difficulty saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? As, as the Apostle Paul put it, we must pass through persecution. Believers must endure the difficult and purifying fires of suffering for Christ. How terrifying then will be the destruction of those who enter eternity rejecting the Lord. Now this thinking, this is not encouraging thinking to our world. They're not going to commend us even further if they hear this kind of discussion. But it's this rethinking, the way that we see life, that is really the key to standing for Christ. And I, 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 was, I was impressed in this vein by the words of an Anabaptist, Jean Van Kuyk. He was in prison for his faith and sentenced to die in the 16th century, an Anabaptist. And he wrote a letter from prison to his young daughter. You've been condemned to die... You're in prison, and you've got a young daughter at home. What do you say to her? Well, I don't know if he wrote this that she would understand it then or later. I don't know the story enough to say. But, but it was impressed, I was impressed in light of the study of this passage to see how this thinking just oozes out of his words. I don't think it's a reflection on 1 Peter 4.17 it's just it's the way his mind is set. Watch this. He says this to his daughter in this letter. But my chosen, that's his, his daughter, my beloved daughter, be not dismayed on this account. Don't, don't be worried about the fact that your father's been in prison. There's, that's, that's a world of saying right there. But he said, this vile flesh has merited yet much more. If I got what I deserved from Christ, I would get much more than imprisonment and execution. I'd get eternal judgment. But there's a merciful God. And for those who know Him, what's He say next? But the Lord chastens us according to His mercy. He chastens the believer. Judgment has come to the house of God. Thus my faith, He says, is tried as gold in the furnace. There's verse 12. Now all the glorious promises of the Lord belong to me. It's not that they didn't before, but it's that enduring this persecution and standing for Christ, he now says, the promises of the Lord I know belong to me. Because I'm standing for Him. I'm not caving in. I'm not renouncing my faith. I continue to cling to Christ crucified and risen. And now I know these promises belong to me. I know myself that I'm unworthy. But our Lord does this to us that our joy may be full. You've got to think a certain way to say that when you're in prison about to die. This is working to make my joy full. And that we should console ourselves with His promises in our tribulation. You see him standing there between the advents in the era of suffering. This is tribulation, but his promises point us forward. It's just it's it's the way the mind is set to think about the situation. He's not thinking about how to get out of this. 
could you please see if you could sell some onions to the neighbors and we could find a way to get a better lawyer and get me out of here? Can you put a, you know, a, a, a saw on a piece of bread and let's try to break out? Or something along those lines. He's saying, I see this as the assignment of God to purify my faith and to complete my joy. Now, verse 19, Peter summarizes his counsel, and we'll hurry here. He said, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Suffering according to God's will. This is a critical orientation in our thinking. If it's to be straight, we must remember that it is, un, it, that it is ultimately God who controls all persecution. It's an assignment from Him. He may ordain that we die. He may ordain that we walk away unharmed with nothing but a tongue lashing. He may subject us to little more than the disdain of our culture. We may not suffer as we should because we fail to proclaim the Gospel, but that being said, when we suffer for righteousness, we can know that God is in control. He will not permit us to be tempted above what we are able, but will enable us to endure to the end for His glory and our everlasting joy. So rather than cower, rather than hide, rather than be surprised by opposition, we should entrust our souls to the faithful Creator while doing good. Do right, trust God. That's the orientation. Active trust in God to protect and empower us. And active obedience to His will. That's the life to which He's called us. In the realm of persecution and in every other realm, of our Christian walk. So by nature, our thinking is twisted when it comes to these things, suffering for Christ. We want to cower, not trust God as sovereign. We naturally yield to the cravings of the flesh, wanting safety and ease and the approval of others, and we're willing to prove disloyal to Christ to satisfy these lusts. Peter knows this. He's experienced it. And he's called us to arm ourselves with a different way of thinking for one. We so easily give in to fear and intimidation and confusion and self-pity and unfaithfulness to the Lord who saved us. But under the counsel of Peter who denied Christ and who died for Him, we have this counsel to take on the orientation of mind that God is in total control. That we live in an era of suffering and should expect it. That the era of vindication is coming. That suffering for Christ is designed by God to purify our faith. It has that intention and that purpose. Suffering well for Christ is one of the surest evidences that our faith is genuine. It's a project of God, not of Satan, to test our faith. Suffering is a cause not to fear, but to rejoice in God and to realize that in this opposition, I am in a blessed position. Now some of you, forgive me, but we're not far off. You're heading to school real soon here. Maybe in a co-op where there's interaction with others. It may be in the public school, in a location here. It may be with neighbors in the um, neighborhood. It may be as an adult at work. But you're heading into this school situation. Let me talk to those first of all. 
where there's going to be opportunities to stand for Christ or to run away. There's going to be opportunities where you must speak the truth, take a position for what is right, or cower and hide. As we think of what we're being taught here as Christians in this vile world, this is a call for us to remember that those situations are not bad luck. They're not just a bad day. They are an opportunity designed by God to build your faith. To stand for Christ and to face the ridicule, the opposition, even if it's just a look, to say that is suffering with Christ. It might be to shine as light at work in the neighborhood with our extended families. And as we interact at work, neighborhood, families, we will invite ridicule and insult. We will face resistance. Some of you, it's so entrenched in your larger families, there's a trial there all the time. For others, it's your relationship with those at work or the neighbors. Will we let people know who we are? Where our loyalties stand? Will we announce the saving grace of Christ in the Gospel? Will we receive and accept the ridicule that comes as the calling of God to identify with the suffering of Christ? We're not in a situation of intense spiritual or intense physical persecution. But there is resistance, particularly when we stand for the Lord. Will we do it? We're not going to do it unless our mind is straight. Unless we see these things as we should. I've told this story before. I hope to tell it again. But when we consider this straight thinking on persecution, I don't know how not to tell the story of Polycarp of Smyrna. who died in A.D. 155. He is said to have met the Apostle John and to be greatly influenced by him. He gained a long-standing reputation as a faithful, gentle, but courageous leader of the church at Smyrna for many years. And one day, Polycarp was arrested in Smyrna at a festival, uh, a Roman festival, and the um, Roman official that saw, overlooked the city, ironically by the name of Herod, uh, told Polycarp that he wanted him to swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord and to renounce his loyalty to Christ. And he hauled him into the arena to make spectacle of him and to have this conversation with Polycarp with the revelers that were all there and had nothing to do that day. This is a report that Polycarp's church wrote about the event to another church. When the proconsul insisted and said, take the oath, Take the oath and I will set you free. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, for six and eighty years I have been serving Him. And He has done me no wrong. How then dare I blaspheme my King who has saved me? If you flatter yourself that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar as you suggest, and if you pretend not to know me, I will let you tell you frankly, I am a Christian. 
if you wish to learn the teaching of Christianity, fix a day and let me explain. A little spunk there, isn't there? The fire which you threaten is one that burns for a little while and after a short time goes out, you evidently do not know the fire of the judgment to come. And the eternal punishment which awaits the wicked. You see Peter's thinking there? You can kill me. There's a judgment to come. Here's a man standing between the advents that knows vindication is on the horizon. And so he says, go ahead. Do what you want. And they did what they wanted. And they killed old Polycarp. But they also did what God wanted. And ultimately what Polycarp rejoiced to endure for Christ. And laced throughout his response, we see this straight thinking. He's not surprised. He is not cowering. He knew God was blessing him. He saw the judgment that was to come on his persecutors. He entrusted himself to his Creator and Savior. In light of his death, in light of the Apostle Peter's martyrdom, in light of the martyrs across the ages, in light of our Savior's own sacrifice, can you not feel in your soul right now that there's something, that there's something much worse than death in this world? There's something much worse than death. Much worse than death is yielding to this world's rabid insistence that we deny the deity, the saving power, and the coming reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And much better than life here is life eternal and vindication and condemnation of the lost before the judge of the living and the dead. You may never stand before an official who demands that you deny Christ or die. But do you not, as a follower of Christ, desire the kind of faith and the kind of thinking that put in that spot would carry you through to be faithful to Christ? Because that way of thinking that orientation and loyalty to Christ is not simply good before the executioner. It is a transforming way of thinking about every area of our lives. When it comes to material possessions, when it comes to the gifts that God has given us, when it comes to the goals of our life, when it comes to everything else, this orientation to see ourselves in the greater story of Christ and to stand in loyalty to Him in all things is our high calling and our deep and infinite blessing. We need to think in a radically different way than this world coaches us and molds us to think. We need to see life from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, and to know that in that orientation to our Lord is eternal joy. That is a life of blessing and hope. Let's bow before the Lord of the universe. Our Father, how do we look at these things without sensing our inadequacy, our failure, our selfishness, 
our fear. We find nothing in ourselves to commend. But I thank you for this life to which you have called us, and though this is a highly unpopular concept, one that scares all kinds of people and leads to further charges and ridicule, we thank you for your wise counsel. And know that with such thinking of willingness to die for Christ, we will hurt not a single person. But we will give ourselves to be hurt by anyone. We thank you for the example, Lord Jesus, of your sacrifice, of laying down your life for the most vulnerable and weak, and depraved. I pray that we would live with an orientation in this direction. That you will enable us to withstand the hostilities that come. Not to create them, not to encourage them wrongly, but never to back down. Never to be surprised never to be discouraged ultimately, but to learn to rejoice in sharing with Christ's sufferings. Straighten our thinking and prepare us to stand and to live out this life each day. And for those that do not know what it means that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, I pray that you'll draw them to the light of the gospel today and to a a repentant response of faith that leads them to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, as the reigning and returning King of kings and Lord of lords. To this end we pray in His name. Amen. Please stand and let's consider silently in our hearts the truth from God's Word that we heard